Well, Lakeview, my wife invited you to come closer to the heart of God a few moments ago and to realize that you are loved and valued and treasured. When I think of those three words, loved, valued, treasured, it brings me back to several years ago when my little boys were babies. So my wife would take one of them, Jack or Gabe, and she would hold them in her arms when they were just little and fit so easily there. She would look into their eyes, have them close to her heart, and she'd look at their little face and she would sing a lullaby. Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Mama's gonna buy you a mockingbird. And she would, or she would say, go to sleep, go to sleep. And she would sing that song until the baby fell asleep just looking at that face and treasuring this child. And as I watched my wife and child, I, there was no question that that little baby was loved, valued, and treasured. There's a verse that um, reminds me of this image. It's one of my favorite verses. It's from a book in the Bible that you probably aren't real familiar with, uh, because it's in the Old Testament, it's only three chapters long, and it's called Zephaniah. And in this book, it, it's a weird place for this verse to show up. But this verse means a lot to me because I grew up feeling like God was mad at me a lot. I mean, God's holy, and He can't allow uh, sin or shame into His presence because that's totally against His nature. And I struggled with thinking about things I shouldn't be and doing things I shouldn't do. And, and because that was part of me and part of how I was, I, I felt like God would have to be mad at me. But as I, as I grew to understand what Jesus did for me when he died on the cross and he took that sin and that shame that, that I do and that's part of me on himself, and he died for it, took it to the grave, and then rose again, I started to realize that God doesn't associate me with those thoughts and those actions that are so against his nature. In fact, he looks at me and he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And so those, those, those things are, are, are in the grave because Jesus took them there. And, and this verse, started to become much more remarkable to me, much more beautiful to me. And it, it's Zephaniah 3.17. And this, this verse, it just tells me how he feels about me. Listen to the words of this verse. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. So just like my memory of my wife singing over those little, my little children my, as they were babies and treasuring them and valuing them, just the image of that. That comes to mind when I think of this verse and when I, when I read this verse, God is singing over me. He's singing over us, his children that he loves and he values and he treasures. My wife, she knew how much that verse meant to me. So when I graduated from seminary, she actually had a rock engraved with that verse, the very words of that verse. And uh, so I have it here for you to, to look at. 
And it says, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. As we think about that verse a little bit this morning, I actually want to back out and look at the context of the book of Zephaniah. It's only three chapters. It won't take too long. Uh, But I want to set the context because it's so important that whenever we find a phrase or a verse that we, we like, we understand what's going on around it so that we can understand even more the intent and the meaning of, of, of what that's trying to convey. So if you go back to the beginning of the book, uh, verse 1 tells you who Zephaniah is and, and set this context. Uh, but verse 2 starts right off and you would, you would think that this verse 3, chapter 3, 17, that verse that I just read, would not show up in a book that starts like this. But let's start with verse 1. So verse 1 tells us who Zephaniah is and, and when he lived and, and what's going on so that we can understand that during this time in, in Israel's history, they had just come out of uh, several bad, evil kings that were doing evil things. So um, Manasseh, He reigned for 55 years and he was the worst king yet in Israel's history and he did terrible things. He he set up altars to foreign gods. He practiced divination and he even offered his son in the fire as a sacrifice. And then after him reigning for 55 years that way, his son Ammon reigned for two years in the same vein, doing the same evil practices. But then Ammon had a son named Josiah that took the throne and he actually sought God with all his heart. He wanted to make changes. He wanted, he broke down those altars. He cleaned the temple. He called people to turn for God, turn to God and he reigned for 31 years. And he sought God during those years. And yet after him, kings went right back to evil. And, and so the trajectory was already set. And it's at this time that Zephaniah is writing to uh, is writing the words in this book and so this this the, the words written here are a collection of his poems and his message that god is speaking to the people during his time so in verse 2 the message begins and listen to how it starts i will sweep away everything from the face of the earth declares the lord and then using some of the most intense images of uh, destruction and judgment. He declares war and destruction uh, throughout chapter 1 and throughout chapter 2. And the focus of this is on the people of Judah and Jerusalem. The focus is on the people who God called to be his special people, the people that he chose to love and he gave his... He revealed himself to, he gave his law to, he... um, he told them this is what it takes to love him and, and to follow him. And, and so they've seen him, they've, they've understood him. Instead of following him, instead of loving him, they claim to worship him, and yet they're worshiping the other idols of the, and the gods of the nations around him. So God's warning them that judgment and war and destruction is coming. Now, many of us struggle with this kind of language in the Old Testament. We wonder, why, why could God condemn people like that? How could God be one way in the Old Testament, this God that's judgment and destruction, and in the New Testament be so loving? 
So I want to take you some through this, some of the key ideas and the thoughts and reasons for what's going on here to help us understand uh, the heart of God and why he's, this language is used. So first of all, Zephaniah, it, it does communicate that God loves his people. We've seen that already when we looked at the end of the chapter, chapter 3, verse 17. I mean, it's, it's obvious that he delights in people. He loves people and that's his heart. So even through all this judgment language and imagery, he loves his people. And, and so there's something more going on. Secondly, this is poetic language. So uh, one of the ways that poetic language is used is, is by using metaphors that, that try to get to the emotion behind the words. So there's a lot of hyperbole that's used. Hyperbole is language that exaggerates uh, the language to, to, to get to the heart, the feeling, the emotions that are involved. So for example, in chapter 1, verse 18, Zephaniah says, the whole earth will be consumed. The whole earth will be consumed for he will make sudden end of all who live on the earth. So if we're to take that literally, then everybody's going to die. Like everybody's going to be destroyed. He will make a sudden end of all who live. Like literally, that's what it says. However, you go further in the book, chapter 3, verse 10, it says, From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. So not everyone's going to die. God's not intent on destroying everything. But what Zephaniah is doing is he's, he's using hyperbole, this language that magnifies the, the imagery so that you can see the heart. And third, God has every reason to be angry. He rescued the Israelite people from slavery. He gave them laws and regulations to, to live by that will help them live and thrive with each other and with him. And in obeying these, they could prosper. They could live in a peaceful relationship with God and with each other. So he gave them everything they needed. He blessed them, he cared for them, he made them into a nation and still they turned to other gods. They saw how God defeated these other gods and they still turned to these other gods. So, chapter 1, verse 9. Check this out. It says that on that day, God says, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. Now you need to know that what's going on here is, is People avoided the priests of, 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 a, of a god named Dagon, uh, avoided stepping on the threshold. Here's why. The Philistine people, that, that this was their god, uh, Dagon, at least one of their gods, he, uh, they battled against Israel a lot. And they had captured the Ark of God. And they put it in the temple next to their god, Dagon. When they woke up in the morning, their god was lying face down in front of the Ark of God. And even more, their, his hands and head were lying on the threshold. They had broken off and they're lying on the threshold. If there is no clearer um, image of who the more powerful God was, this, it couldn't be clearer. The God of the Ark of the Covenant, the Israelite God, was definitely superior to this, this Dagon who was lying flat face first in front of him. And yet, the people, instead of turning to Almighty God, to the Israelite God, and acknowledging that he was the greater God, they, they actually started honoring the threshold where his 
uh, hands and his head were lying. They, they wanted to respect this area, so they didn't even step on it because their God, this space was now sacred because his hands and his head had lying on it. And so the Israelites who knew this God, the Israelite God, they even joined them in their practice of honoring this, this idol, this fake God. So God's people, they knew who was God. They knew, they've seen his power. They, they knew about him. They, he's revealed himself. And yet they're turning and worshiping these, these gods of the nations around them. Now, imagine you're in love with someone. And this person tells you they love you. In fact, they tell you that you're the only one for them. And then they go off and do things with other people that they should only be doing with you. Now, I want to be sensitive here because many of us have experienced this kind of betrayal. And it's awful. You don't, you don't even have to imagine it. You know how devastating it is when your love is betrayed that way. And part of what Zephaniah is revealing is that God has been treated the same way. The people he loves, they told him they love him and that he's their God. And yet they're going off and doing things with other gods that are only meant to be done with him. And so he's upset. This just shows the heart of God. He, he's not a God that just sits by and doesn't care. He's invested. And if you've ever felt that way, the language you use is, 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 is hyperbole. It's exaggerated. You, you, you express feeling through the words you use to describe the situation. And that's, so what this, ex, this hyperbolic, ex, uh, exaggerated language that we read about, it's actually expected from someone who's upset. As you read further, in chapter two, verse three, uh, this helps us realize that God's intent is not to destroy everyone. Remember, he loves people. He loves people enough to let them choose their path. He's so intent to warn people that the path they're headed on is headed toward destruction. So he's warning them. So listen to chapter 2, verse 3. It says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you'll be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Zephaniah is, is warning them. And then in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, listen to what he says here. On that day, you Jerusalem will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me because I will remove you from your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and the humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. One of the themes that Zephaniah is really revealing is that <clears throat> the judgment that God is announcing is not for total destruction, but for purification. You see, he wants to be in loving, peaceful, thriving relationships with, with his people and his people with each other. And when they start turning away from him and choosing this path of selfishness and, and wanting to get more for me and, and choose my own comfort and my own pleasure, it, it turns to me versus you and it turns to destruction and it's just the path that leads to destruction. And so he's calling us to purification. And God has been patient for years and years with the people, calling them. He's told them how it is 
what's going to happen if you're on this path? And then he's warned them again and again. So when, when, Isaiah, when Zephaniah comes along, he's just repeating the warning and he's calling them and telling them, look, this is where it's headed. Let's change. But he's also pointing ahead to what the purpose of all this is for. Check out chapter 3, verse 9. It says, Then I will purify the people, lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. God's purpose of this judgment, warning, is to bring people back into relationship with himself, to remove evil and draw all the humble, all the willing from all the nations back to himself. So let's fast forward to Ephesians where we've been for the last four months. And look at Ephesians 3, 4 to 6. It says, and, and it just talks about how God works toward fulfilling the plan to draw people, not just from Israel, but from the other nations as well. In reading this then, this is Ephesians 3, 4 to 6. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. God's plan of ultimately dealing with, with evil has always been through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Yes, the Israelites did get taken into captivity captivity, their, their city and their nation was captured and, and demolished and they were taken away. Um, but then years later they came back and to the land. And, but as you read the promises of Zephaniah 3.14, um, it's clear that the fulfillment of what these verses are saying isn't fully accomplished except through Jesus. So listen to these verses in the end of chapter 3 that talk about how these will be fulfilled. It says, Sing, daughter Zion. This is chapter 3, verse 14. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. And then 17 says, The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. And then 19 and 20 say, At that time I will deal with you, or with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time I will gather you, at that time I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. This is the heart of God. He wants to rescue, he wants to restore, he wants to bless people, not only from, from this small area of the world, but across the nations. He wants to rescue anybody who acknowledges him and desires to know him and is willing to obey him. I had a friend once tell me that books of the Bible like 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, they record the history, what happened. But the prophets, they reveal the heart of God. That's a little simplistic, but I think Zephaniah does reveal more of the heart of God. God 
is not uninvolved. He's not passive. He's not uncaring. He doesn't just sit by and watch. He's passionate. He passionately loves what he's created. He loves the people that he designed to live in relationship with him and with each other. And he wants us to thrive in relationship with him and with others, in the beauty of, of love. He doesn't want us to pursue this path of selfishness at the expense of others that leads to destruction. And it hurts him when we choose destruction. But he still allows us to go down that path. But he warns us where that path is going. And he continually invites us to be rescued by him. And when we accept this rescue, he delights in us. He rejoices over us. He doesn't hold our sin and shame against us because Jesus took care of that. He rejoices over us with singing. Just imagine that for a minute. The Almighty God rejoicing over us with singing. For some of us, that might bring immediate comfort and delight. For others of us, it's so far out of the realm of your experience, you can't even imagine it. And for some of us, we can sort of imagine it, but it seems a little far-fetched. Wherever you lie on that spectrum, if it totally comforts you or if you can't even imagine it or somewhere in between, I want to invite you to come closer to the heart of God. I want you to come to the God who knows every thought, every desire, every hurt, every failure, Every hope, he knows you. He knows you better than anyone else and he loves you. He desperately loves you and he values you, values you and he treasures you. No matter where you've been, what you've done, how you feel, he wants you to come and ask him to forgive you and to give your life to him and then he will give you life. He will give you hope. He will give you all that you need and he will walk through whatever you face with you. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Let's pray together. God, as we stand in this beautiful place that you made for us to enjoy, you love us. You value us. You treasure us. Some of us don't know even what that might feel like. Some of us have a glimpse, but barely. Some of us take great delight in it. Father, help us to be willing to come closer. And as we come closer, show us more of your love, that you value us, that you treasure us. God, thank you that you are not an uninvolved, passive, idle God, but that you are the God who rejoices over us with singing. May we be blessed as we go out and enjoy you and your creation and the people that you love. Amen.